Brought to you by the Mary Christie Institute, a thought leadership organization dedicated to the behavioral health and well-being of teens and young adults. We have a particular focus on college students. I'm Marjorie Malpedi, the executive director of the Mary Christie Institute. And I'm Dana Humphrey, the associate director of the Mary Christie Institute, and we're the hosts of the podcast. So it is the holiday season, and we want to be celebrating and feeling joyful and having fun, and I hope that all of us will do that. But we need to be mindful that so many of us will also struggle with our mental health, particularly college students. After another disruptive year for higher education, it is clear that student mental health is an urgent issue for college and university leaders. So concerned are they that mental health issues are now among the variables being weighed in campus closures, even as COVID and its variants thrive. Clearly, the isolation and loneliness that comes with the absence of community is no small consideration. Just how influential a pandemic has been on the mental health and well-being of our young people is yet to be fully realized. But as we close out 2021 and look to the year ahead, this issue will be on every college president's mind. It is something today's guest deals with every year and every day. Dr. Zoe Ragusius heads up counseling and wellness services at NYU in New York City and on its global campuses. She also serves as the president of the Mary Christie Institute, and we are so grateful we get to hear her insights on a regular basis. Today, she is here to talk with us about this year and next year. Hi, Zoe. Hi, Marge. Thanks for having me again. So great to have you as always. So you've been serving students and supporting staff throughout the pandemic, and now we're going into another uncertain year. It's a big question for you, but what are some of the big things that are on your mind right now? Well, I mean, I really think that we need to think about the fact that the mental health issues on college campuses did not start when the pandemic started. And that, in fact, there's a lot of research that way before the pandemic, there's been a growing mental health crisis on our campuses and that college counseling services were struggling to meet the demand. And as depressed and anxious as our students were before, I think we also know that the pandemic has made everything worse. When classes went remote and students went home, they faced a lot of crises, including their friends getting sick and losing jobs, you know, some people even losing their lives. And so they felt alone and isolated and deprived of milestones that are huge losses in a young person's psychological progression, like graduations and first year experiences. It didn't stop when the world appeared to open back up this semester. And in fact, this semester was just another difficult transition for our students. And in fact, we saw with the lack of socialization and all of their isolation that they really struggled this semester. You know, things are definitely not back to normal on our campuses with a lot of COVID safety precautions restrictions on how and where they can eat and for how long. And so they're struggling to socialize in the ways that they did before. And we're seeing that they're really rusty in terms of their social skills, given all the semesters away and their ability to regulate their emotions and their time management and their stress management. All of this is on my mind as we face the next transition. And really, that's what it is. I mean, given the ways that we are going into the winter break with this new variant having affected the way we ended our fall semester, there's a lot of open questions about the psychological supports that students are going to need when they come back 
you know, hopefully they come back in the spring. So Zoe, I want to ask you a question about what you just said before we talk about the challenges ahead. So in your opinion, as a clinician, do you feel as though some of what's happening with student mental health, again, now that we had hoped that there was going to be a new normal and and students would be back on campus has to do with some kind of delay maybe in how they were processing what they went through relative to the trauma you mentioned? Well, I mean, I think that on a certain level, and you know, there is a silver lining to this, we've given students the permission and we've sort of evened the playing field in terms of people having had their mental health affected. Every single one of us has had our mental health affected in one way or another. Because of that, we find that students are asking for what they need as it relates to their mental health and maybe facing a little bit less stigma with knowing that they need mental health support. So it's not necessarily a delay, but I think that the significant increases in the students coming forward is related to that decrease in stigma, but also that students who didn't otherwise have mental health issues, they certainly don't have a clinical diagnosis, are facing mental health challenges. Now, whether they need a clinical intervention or, or a good old-fashioned support from a student affairs colleague or someone else is a whole conversation in and of itself, but certainly students are, are able to ask for what they need, and many more students need support right now. So, Zoe, one of the things I wanted to ask you about in terms of, as you say, students now are feeling they have permission to ask for help, and a lot of them are asking help from their faculty. So when we did our faculty survey report, which you advised on in April of this past year, we learned a lot of interesting things. One was that a real strong majority of faculty had reported that they had had one-on-one conversations with their students about their mental health struggles, which sort of led us to believe you know, whether or not faculty should or can assist students with their mental health, they certainly had been. So when you talk about them going into the new semester, do you think that dynamic is starting to change where faculty are started to say, you know what, we're sort of in this, whether we like it or not, and we're in it for the long haul? Yeah, I mean, I really do see faculty embracing student well-being and looking at students as whole people in a different way. I think they're realizing that well-being is a conversation had inside and outside the classroom. And, you know, I think that the faculty and students have developed a little bit of a different kind of kinship in each of them having to navigate a remote classroom together. So I think that has really brought up different perspective to the faculty in terms of what it means to be a, a student trying to learn. I've personally found faculty to be really kind and supportive to the students. You know, when we were remote, they were really the only ones who had eyes on the students when they were, you know, studying from home. I found that many more faculty were bringing students to our attention. And really, at the end, I think that faculty want to be advocates for students, and they want to know how to do that safely. And, and, you know, of course, the next questions are around what that looks like, right? You know, do we require training of the faculty? And if so, what is the crux of that training? Is it simply to notice and refer to the counseling services as has been that, you know, the kind of training we've done with faculty in the past? Or do we go beyond that and try and train them to be supportive to students who might not actually need clinical care, and who really just need someone to talk to? And then there's, of course, all sorts of conversations about whether faculty have the bandwidth to do any of what I've just said, 
and whether they can be incentivized to take on those additional roles. Right. And I think you'll remember from the survey that a majority of faculty reported they had a good idea of how to recognize that a student was in emotional distress, but they all wanted to feel more confident in their ability to send students for help or recognize that their their students did need help. So I think there was a strong motivation for more training, but I understand they are up against very busy schedules and it's certainly different school by school. There's also kind of an interesting shift potentially that faculty, sort of your point, they may not necessarily look for additional or mandatory training, but maybe they have a better sense now that being more personal or bringing emotion into the classroom is maybe a little bit more accepted and perhaps needed. Yeah. And, you know, I always try to say to faculty that their words are so much more impactful to students than anything a counselor could say, because they really look up to their faculty. Maybe they want to study in in the same disciplines as them. Maybe they want to, you know, be faculty one day themselves. But you know, they really hold on to what their faculty says to them. And so if faculty could, you know, really just by recognizing that we were, we really have all been struggling and, you know, in healthy and safe ways, of course, disclose that they too have faced similar struggles. I think that goes a long way in normalizing, decreasing the stigma, and then having the right students come in for counseling support, knowing that their faculty support it. Right. And speaking of different student groups, some of the disturbing data that came out was around students of color or students of the LGBTQ plus communities that they had reported even deeper distress around the pandemic for a number of obvious reasons. So what has been your sort of experience with that? And what work are you doing at NYU to address that? There are a lot of reasons that BIPOC students should feel a disproportionate impact of the pandemic, right? There were racial groups that were being impacted by COVID at higher rates. They often received subpar medical care. And then, of course, the continued impact of police brutality and racial injustice that was happening all at the same time. It became clear to us early, at least here at NYU, that students wanted to be cared for, but they also wanted to be cared for in communities with those who shared their salient identities. So what we did was we created many more support groups and really looked at the clinical groups we were offering to make sure that they were a way of providing care and then providing connection to isolated students who were less satisfied with individual care as they used to be because they had other sources being with others. And so now our clinical groups and support groups became a way of being with others and also getting the the care that they need. So we created support groups for black and brown students and for AAPI students and for trans and non-binary students. And then around other identities like students as caregivers and students in the health professions. And we really listened to the students' needs and created support groups for any group that, you know, students said was important and was not being addressed as an, as an identity that, was, that should be addressed. We created a support group for them and they really responded positively and I think appreciated the space to be together and to heal together. I'm assuming then, and this kind of goes into the silver linings bucket, that that's something that you would continue going into 2022 regardless of the pandemic, right? This understanding that affinity groups are really important to mental health. Oh, yeah. I mean, there are, you know, again, some of the ways that we have had to force ourselves to look at things differently have really been a silver lining. And we'll never change some of those things, including the provision of remote care. But also, as you say, what did we learn clinically? And how can we 
serve students in the ways that they want to be served, which will allow them to feel more comfortable coming to us. So one of the things that I know you're concerned about going into this new year is staffing and what's going on with supporting those who support others. So talk a little bit about that, maybe not specific just to what you're dealing with your team, but also in the industry. What are you seeing? Yeah. So the burnout of mental health professionals is sort of a national phenomenon. Mental health professionals have feel like they've given their all during all of the previous transitions that have taken place due to the pandemic. And they're at a point where they're wondering if they have any more left to give. And many are resigning out of uh, college counseling center positions. And frankly, many around the country who are not even in higher ed are looking at whether the mental health field is for them. You know, it's been it's been a highly pressured profession to be in at a time where people needed you more and you were also facing your individual issues simultaneously to those of your patients. And that's really hard to provide support and care when you too are are feeling personal struggles. So I think that there is no counseling service director listening right now who has not faced this issue in some capacity. When you think about this sort of from an industry perspective or the issue writ large, what are some of the solutions? It's it's almost like there needs to be a whole sort of re-examining of the workforce pipeline. I don't know if you have even the bandwidth to think about that, but it's a real issue. Yeah. I mean, there are discussions being had as to whether we're doing enough to bring people into the mental health professions. And then again, looking at the expectations of the providing of health and mental health care within a higher ed setting is one that really should be looked at. And again, if people want to do health care and people want to do mental health care, is higher ed the right place to be doing it? Those are two separate questions. You know, there were a lot of reasons to believe that higher ed was the best place to provide mental health care, including that students are at a moment in their lives where they're really open to changing and to absorbing mental health recommendations. And, and, you know, they're at a developmental stage where they're making these decisions for themselves for the first time, and they're really ready. So that hasn't changed. And so I think that, you know, all is not lost. And I think that clinicians really know the benefits of working in higher ed. But again, there have been some significant challenges, which has resulted in people revisiting whether this is the right profession to be in and the right venue to be providing their skill set. I think that will stabilize. I really do. But for the moment, that's where we are. So Zoe, on a positive note, let's talk a little bit about what you hope will happen. And and you talked a little bit about the silver linings, but some of the significant changes that have occurred in the past 18 months will actually help us as we continue to do this work. One thing I think that that is a good sign is the attention that college student mental health is getting. It, it is a priority among higher ed leadership, as, as you well know. We keep seeing this with the Council of Education's Pulse Point surveys, where their key findings show that the mental health of students is the most commonly selected across all sectors for presidents when they say what they're most concerned about. So awareness and concern are very high. You had mentioned students are 
asking for help. So I'm going to leave it there and see what you think about what some of the more positive aspects are as we go into a new year. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's some opportunities that are are ripe in this moment, as you say, putting mental health and well-being on the university agenda as a presidential priority is a very important one. I think at many higher ed institutions, it was always there, but there's certainly been a renewed emphasis and that's really important to maintain at the highest levels for the presidents to dedicate themselves to prioritizing this issue. And really not much can be done if that doesn't happen first. I mentioned technology earlier. I think that continuing to explore the ways that technology can help us to provide mental health care, both for the issue of burnout, like what could we, you know, even in a profession that requires the human touch, What could we use technology to do that might prevent people from burning out? That's really important. We've also, also seen that remote care is really clinically important. And so we want to continue to explore technology and the ways that we're providing remote care. You know, we've also really seen... In, in these now, what is it, four semesters, amazing signs of resilience with our students. You know, they're really ready to help their peers in ways that I haven't seen before. You know, for at NYU, we have something called the Public Health Ambassador Program. And it really started as a way of having our students help us around COVID safety. But this semester, we included the conversation around well-being. And so we trained these public health ambassadors who are really undergraduate and graduate students here on issues like making friends and time management and mindfulness. And, and they then went, to, went around campus and started to educate others and helped other students engage and make connections. And I also know that peers are really important at other institutions as it relates to peer counseling. And so I was really pleased that the Mary Christie Institute has been able to take on this topic and that we're collecting more information about peer counseling so that universities can consider it and and make uh, decisions around it. And I know that survey data is forthcoming and we're really excited about that. Overall, I'm getting a really strong sense from students that they're both much more able to ask for what they need in terms of their mental health, but also that they want to be part of the solution. I've heard a lot more students saying, how can I help? And they're really wanting to be advocates for themselves and other students. So I am so glad you mentioned the survey. We're super excited about getting that out. And it just, uh, for our audience, it's a survey that we did with the Born This Way Foundation. And it's of over 2,000 college students, their motivation around perceptions of peer counseling. And so we were really excited to be releasing that in January. That is actually a really great way to end on a positive note. And I love what you're saying about student resilience. And I I hope that's true. And I think that it is. So thank you so much, as always, for giving us your thoughts about your experiences in this year and what you're thinking about for next year. Dr. Zoe Raguzzi is Head of Counseling and Wellness Services at NYU and the President of the Mary Christie Institute. Thank you so much. Have a great holiday. Thank you. You too. This has been the Quadcast, a program of the Mary Christie Institute. To learn more about our work, go to marychristieinstitute.org, where you can sign up for our other programs like the MC Feed and the Mary Christie Quarterly. And if you like what we're doing, leave us a rating or review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks so much for listening.